0: Thank you, Rod. Good morning, Saints. It's a joy to be with you this morning to sing praises to our resurrected Savior who intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of God. It is indeed a pleasure to be back. Jane and I have so many fond memories of our time with you last year, and to come back and enjoy the love of your fellowship again is really a delight and also your gracious hospitality, especially that of Rod and Susie, as we've been staying with them the last few days. But the message this morning is the best-kept secret in the church, and some of you are probably wondering, what is the best-kept secret in the church? And I guess it depends on which church. For some, it may be the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best-kept secret in the church, but I know that's not the case here. But before we get into what the best-kept secret is, I know that anyone who has read the Bible knows that man's greatest problem is sin. There is a day of judgment coming when God's holy and righteous anger against sin will be poured out. Since no one can escape God's justice, man's greatest need is divine forgiveness. I think we would all agree that every other need we have in this life pales in comparison with our need to be forgiven. Without God's forgiveness, each one of us would be destined for a fiery furnace with absolutely no hope of escape. But there is much disagreement within Christianity on how we are forgiven and to the extent of God's forgiveness. The majority of professing Christians believe that their relationship with God is broken or severed each time they commit a sin, and it cannot be restored until their sins are confessed. And because of this, they live in the shadow of fear without peace because they've never understood or believed the best-kept secret in the church. What is the best-kept secret in the church? God's forgiveness is given freely and completely at the moment of faith and is secured forever for all past, present, and future sins. For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard of this. I confess that I had never heard it. During my first 10 years of walking with Jesus Christ, there is a part two of this best kept secret, and that is as adopted children of God, fellowship with the Father and the Son is eternal and a cause for complete joy. God's forgiveness is indeed unconditional for all of us who have been born of God. In the next few minutes, let us seek to better understand our need for forgiveness, how we can be freely forgiven and the extent and duration of divine forgiveness. We know that God's forgiveness is complete because that's what He has revealed to us through the Scriptures. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that He canceled out the certificate of debt. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The eternal sin debt was nailed to the cross. Only an eternal God can cancel an infinite sin debt an eternal sin debt. Finite man can never do that. That's why without Christ we are hopeless and helpless. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 12, John says, "I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven." Present tense. And then in Colossians 1:14, Paul writes, "In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." And in Hebrews 10:17, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God forgave all the sins of every believer. They are all gone. The sins against God, the sins against man, the sins against the body, the sins against the law, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, the sins in the past, the sins in the future, they are all forgiven. They are all removed as far as the east is from the west. This forgiveness is so complete and final that once we have been reconciled to God, He no longer counts our sins against us. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that God is reconciling the world to Himself through Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. In Psalm 32, we heard this morning, Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. This pardon is given freely to those who repent and believe the gospel. That is why the gospel is good news. A believer cannot have unforgiven sins. Fellowship with God is eternal. According to God's eternal purpose, every believer has been saved from eternal judgment, saved from eternal destruction and eternal punishment and the eternal fire. And you see the scripture references here. Believers possess eternal redemption through the eternal Spirit, who guarantees an eternal inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we see that when we hear the gospel of our salvation, having believed, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. Yet so many refuse to believe that the word eternal means everlasting and forever, Eternal means there is no termination, there is no end. An eternal inheritance awaits those who have been sealed with the eternal spirit. Nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see believers falling in and out of a relationship with God. When we look at the word eternal, we see that it is a divine promise backed by the awesome power of Almighty God The eternal gospel of our eternal God promises every believer eternal life and eternal glory in his eternal kingdom. The eternal king calls salvation eternal, and he has given believers eternal comfort. These promises of God should bring great joy to your heart because, as I said, they are backed up by his almighty power. God cannot lie, he cannot break his promise. And so that is one of the purposes of John's epistle, that we would have complete joy. Does does sin cause separation? As I mentioned earlier, there are many who profess to be Christians who believe that every time they commit a sin, they fall out of fellowship and they are separated from God. But in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm sorry, in Romans 8 38 and 39, we see that neither sin nor anything else will separate. A believer from God's love. Paul lists a whole bunch of things there, and nothing, nothing created or uncreated, can ever separate us from the love of God. In 1 Corinthians 1 9, we read that God, who called you into fellowship with his Son, is faithful. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, God is faithful when we are faithless. He writes, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And isn't that good news for all of us who have been born of the Spirit of God? That our eternal fellowship with God is based on his fellowship towards us? Not our faithfulness towards him? Because if it were based on our faithfulness towards God, each one of us would blow it. But it's his faithfulness towards us. What a glorious promise to know that our relationship with God is secure. And we see in Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He promises to lose not one that the Father gives him, as we see in John six thirty nine. In John chapter 10, we see we sit in the palm of the Father's hand, the palm of the Son's hand. I like to picture it like this. No one can snatch us out. We have questions that we need to ask those who believe that sin causes separation for a believer. How can one who has been perfected forever be found imperfect? That's what Hebrews 10.14 tells us. By one offering, God has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Now, that doesn't mean that we are perfect, but He sees us with the righteousness of His Son. And so, because of that righteousness... He sees us as perfect forever. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we must ask those who believe that sin causes separation from God for believers, how can one who has been born again of an incorruptible seed die again? Death no longer has sting. Christ defeated death on the cross. We live spiritually forever. With our Lord through the imperishable seed, the Word of God. We ask a question how can one who has been redeemed from the curse of the law be placed back under the curse? Jesus reversed the curse of sin for all of those who believe in Him because He became a curse for us. How can God break His promise to perfect the work He started in believers? What is the promise of God? When he begins a good work in us, he will carry it through to completion. And so these are questions that we must ask those who believe sin causes separation for believers. So why do so many believe ongoing confession is necessary for forgiveness? Well, I'll give you an example out of the Old Testament. The Jews under the Old Covenant were required to confess specific sins and bring a guilt offering to the Lord for them. We see in Leviticus 5, verses 5 to 6. That was the practice under the Old Covenant, to confess specific sins. We see the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics are required to confess specific mortal sins to a priest and then make satisfaction for them before they will be forgiven. That is the practice that is ongoing in the Catholic Church. Each Catholic must make satisfaction for their own sins and confess their sins to a priest. They're denying the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ made satisfaction on the cross. And so because of these two examples, there are many Christians who misinterpret 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 1, and we want to look at verses 6 through 10, as you're turning to 1 John chapter 1, I want you to notice in these verses, these five verses that we will read, that John begins each verse with the words, if we. He follows each of these conditions with a conclusion. Beginning in verse 6, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, that's the condition. The conclusion is we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. By walking in the light as Jesus Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Look at verse 8, the condition. If we say that we have no sin, the conclusion is we are deceiving ourselves And the truth is not in us. And then verse 9, the condition, if we confess our sins, the conclusion, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Finally, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, the conclusion is we have made God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John is giving tests to determine true Christian fellowship. He is giving a test for each one of us to evaluate ourselves to determine whether or not we are true believers. Why were these tests needed? Why did John have to pen these words? It's because the Gnostics had come into the church and they were not only deceiving people but causing great confusion and a loss of joy. Some of you may have read about the Gnostics' heresy. They claimed secret knowledge about God. They taught dualism, that the spirit and the body were two separate entities. They taught that the body was evil and could not be changed, therefore let the body fulfill its lust and continue in habitual sin. They also denied that Jesus came in the flesh because God would not inhabit an evil body. Finally, they taught that their true identity was their spirit, which was without sin. You see, that is how they claimed that they were without sin. The body was separate from the spirit, and their spirit was without sin. They said the body was corrupt, so let it continue and fulfill its lustful desires. That's not really our identity. Our identity is found in the spirit. The Gnostics were professing Christians who claimed their superior knowledge allowed them to live on a spiritual plane apart from sin. Imagine for a moment if someone came into this church and began teaching these heresies. What would the church leadership have to do? They would have to expose this, show that it was diametrically opposed to the word of God And ask them to leave. And that is exactly what John is doing in this first epistle. He's exposing the Gnostics as false teachers because they were confusing the true believers and robbing them of their joy. John is saying, don't believe the Gnostics. Instead, believe what we have seen and heard, and you will have complete joy and fellowship with us and with God. John is saying, don't be fooled by the Gnostics who say they have no sin." They are deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. The Gnostics were acting consistent with the strategy of the devil, because whenever the seeds of God's word are sown, Satan comes along to sow his seeds of falsehood. That is why we have so many terrors in the church. The Lord Jesus said, that will be a mark of the end-time church, that there will be many terrors within our church. Well, when we look at the nature of deception, I hope you all realize that by the very nature of deception, people who are being deceived are not aware that they're being deceived unless someone confronts them with the truth. I hope you also realize that truth mixed with error is not truth. If you have a high-protein drink that you drink to get healthy and strong, and someone comes along and places one drop of poison in it, It's no longer a drink that will make you healthy. It's a drink that will kill you. And that's the way Satan operates. He doesn't come out with blatant lies. He mixes truth with error. And once he has done that, then truth is no longer truth. For deception to be effective, it must appear to be essentially true. And oftentimes we have professing Christians who promote another gospel They have the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but their core beliefs in the gospel are shrouded by this veneer of truth. It appears to be true until you dig deeper into the gospel. The deadliest counterfeit is the one that most closely resembles the truth. And I say this as sensitively and softly as I can. The greatest counterfeit to Christianity today is the Roman Catholic Church. It upholds the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but that is simply a veneer of truth that hides a false gospel. It most closely resembles true Christianity, which is why we have so many evangelicals that are calling it another Christian denomination. Those who are deceived may never know they've been deceived. There are many who are perishing every day because they have been deceived and no one has ever confronted them with the truth. This is the nature of deception. We are experiencing quite a bit in the news this weekend because of the passing of John Paul II. And as I thought about it and I was watching the news, I just felt like I was compelled to tell you the truth about what is going on because there has been a lot of misinformation that has come across the news channels in the last 48 hours. This man that has just passed away has said that those who live according to the Beatitudes will enter God's kingdom. All who seek God with a sincere heart, including those who do not know Christ in His church, contribute to the building of His kingdom. You find this quote on the Vatican Information Service, December 6th of 2000. Many evangelicals are praising this man as a strong spiritual leader that has passed away. My heart has been so grieved and so troubled, not only because that the soul has now perished without Christ, but that many now are being deceived even while he is dead because the media has become his mouthpiece. We know that only God knows a man's heart. We cannot ever judge a man's heart. All we can do, according to the Scriptures, is judge what each person says. And when a man says what John Paul has said, that you can get to heaven without Jesus Christ, he's denying the very words of Jesus Christ in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way to the Father, and no one comes to him except through me. The Apostle Paul said there is one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. Peter, who the Catholics believe was their first pope, He said, there is no other name under heaven given by which men can be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only way. And yet this man denies this. When we look at John Paul and we've seen so many accolades over the last 48 hours about his life, and granted this was a very, a man of great charisma. He was a man that was pro-life and against abortion. And there was many good things that you could say about him. But we also must talk about the rest of his resume. He was declared the infallible head of the church, which meant that whenever he spoke according to faith and morals, he could not err, and that Catholics must believe what he said to be true. So his authority was said to be greater than that of the Word of God. He was addressed as Holy Father. In fact, doesn't it grieve you when you hear that? There is only one Holy Father. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Holy Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17. That is the only Holy Father we have. And for this man to dare to wear the title of God, and it's not only Holy Father that he wears, he also wore the title of the head of the church, a title given to Jesus Christ. So he took that title from Jesus. He also took the title of the Holy Spirit, He called himself the Vicar of Christ. We know the Vicar of Christ on this earth today is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I must depart, but I will send to you a comforter in my place. The Holy Spirit is the Vicar of Christ. So this man takes the three titles given to the Trinity. Mary was his co-redeemer. He fought hard to make this an infallible dogma co-redeemer with Christ, but the cardinal said, no, if you do that, it will thwart the ecumenical movement. He taught that evolution is true, again denying the words of Jesus that he created man and woman. He also taught ungodly indulgences for sin. You may have heard in the year 2000, the millennium indulgence. He said if you quit drinking and quit smoking, that you will receive a plenary indulgence which means that all the punishment for all your sins would be washed away. Where's the blood of Christ in that indulgence? He was loved by the world. Year in and year out, the most admired man in the world was the Pope. What did Jesus say in Luke 6, 26? Woe to the man who is loved by all. If you follow Jesus Christ, you will be hated by the world. You will be persecuted by the world, not loved by the world. And Paul wrote about these false teachers. They appear as ministers of righteousness. Pope John Paul deceived the world with another gospel. And this is what I would like you to remember because we have a great opportunity in the days and weeks ahead to earnestly contend for the faith, but also to proclaim the true gospel. There is a warning about preaching another gospel. We see it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone preaches a gospel to you other than the one you received, let a curse be upon him. Paul says that even if I or an angel from heaven were to return and preach a gospel other than the one you received, let a curse be upon them. Let anathema be upon them. Let them be turned over to God for destruction. That's how important it is to keep the gospel pure, to not add anything to it, to not take anything away from it. But when you look at the Pope's gospel, he said you must receive the sacraments in order to be saved. And the numbers you see in parentheses here are the paragraph numbers of the Pope's catechism that he blessed and endorsed in 1994. He said you must participate in meritorious masses, in paragraph 1405. You must belong to the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church, paragraph 846. You must believe that purgatory will purge away the sins that the blood of Christ was unable to cleanse. Paragraph 1030. You must believe indulgences can remit punishment for sin. Paragraph 1498. You must believe that your baptism is what made you a child of God, what made you destined for heaven, that baptism is necessary for salvation. And then in paragraph 2016, you must believe that good works are necessary for entrance into heaven. If you remember the Reformation, the Reformers said we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone. And the Pope and the Council of Trent came out with a counter-reformation saying that if you believe that, you are condemned. You and I have been condemned over 100 times because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rome says justification is by faith plus good works, a gospel diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two different paths to eternity when we look at Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. God's gospel, excuse me, starting with the Pope's gospel, he says that salvation is by attainment, that we can attain our salvation and assist in saving our brothers and sisters. That's what the Pope taught. He said that we are saved through human merit, that we are saved based on what we do. Now contrast this with God's gospel. Salvation is by atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ, not by attainment. And salvation is through divine mercy and grace, not through human merit. And salvation is based on what God has done for you through Jesus Christ not what you must do for God. It's two different Gospels, and I have not heard yet one evangelical on the news that have come out and said, the Pope has taught another Gospel. He has deceived the world. And so I hope that all of you will be a light in the next few weeks and use this as an opportunity not only as your witness to Roman Catholics but also to other professing Christians that may not know that there is indeed a different Gospel There's many people that are speculating about who the next pope will be. One of the leading contenders is an African Cardinal Francis Orenzi. Recently in Dallas, he was interviewed by the Dallas Morning News and was asked the question, can you still get to heaven without Jesus? He answered expressly, yes. God's grant of salvation includes not only Christians, but Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and people of goodwill. This is a man that believes the same thing John Paul believed, that you can get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. And I know that this is discouraging for all of us to see the deception that is going throughout the world, but we have comfort in knowing that the Lord Jesus said these things must take place, that there would be great deception before he comes again, and there would be a world religion and you see, if this man, Cardinal Lorenzi, is the next pope, he will continue building bridges into all the religions, denying that Jesus is necessary. Well, let's get back to John's first epistle. Why did he write his first epistle? He gives the answer, First John five thirteen. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. Isn't this a great verse that God wants all of us to know with absolute confidence in His promises that we have the assurance of eternal life? It's one of the reasons John wrote it. We see another reason in chapter 1, verse 4, so that the joy of every Christian may be full. When you know you have eternal life, your joy can be fulfilled. But John also wrote his epistle to give test to show how a true Christian believes and lives. And we're going to look at some of those tests that he gave. He also wrote his epistle to expose false teachers who fail these particular tests. John offers several tests to identify the wheat from the tares, the true Christians from the counterfeit Christians. He says, if you pass the test, you have fellowship with God and with the saints. If you fail the test, you have believed the wrong doctrine and have no fellowship with God. So when we look closely at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a very unique verse. It is the only verse in the New Testament where confession and forgiveness are mentioned together. It is this verse that has caused so much confusion and disagreement on divine forgiveness. So I ask you the question, is John prescribing what Christians must do in that they have a need to continually confess their sins as a condition for forgiveness? Or is John describing an identifying mark of a Christian, one who confesses doctrinal truth? I have sinned. I hope that you all see that John is describing that a true Christian will continually confess their sins and that they will also have the promise of forgiveness. A Christian's confession of sin does not affect their forgiveness. It actually expresses their forgiveness obtained 2,000 years ago when they believed that Christ died in their place. One test that John gives in his epistle is your understanding of sin. In verse 8, he writes, If we say that we have no sin, that is, if we deny we have sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The worst kind of deception is self-deception. And that's what's happening here. The Gnostics have said they have no sin. They were deceiving themselves and they were not in the truth. But look at the antithesis of verse 8. John writes, if we confess our sins, in other words, if we say that we have sins, we are being truthful and the truth is in us. A correct understanding of sin is necessary to know that we need forgiveness and we need a Savior. When we confess our sins, we are acknowledging doctrinal truth. We know what the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Gnostics were denying this doctrinal truth. True Christians will continually confess their sins. Remember what Paul said after he was born again? I am the worst of sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And Peter, after being born of the Spirit of God, actually this was before Pentecost, Peter said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. A true Christian will acknowledge their sinfulness. So when we look at the Greek, the original Greek in this particular verse, 1 John 1.9, it states this, if we agree with God about our sin and guilt, he is worthy of our trust and perfectly just in removing our guilt, canceling our eternal sin debt and purifying us from the spiritual pollution of sin. So John is saying, don't believe the Gnostics, believe what we have seen and heard, agree that you have sinned. And once you have trusted Christ as your substitute, He is worthy to be trusted and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When this is fully understood, it brings forth everlasting joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. I have a friend who had been teaching precepts for many, many years, and when she came to this particular verse and heard the true understanding, the true interpretation of it, she began weeping, not only weeping for joy that this was such a glorious truth to know, but weeping because she had misled so many people about their need to confess specific sins before they could be forgiven. For those who teach that ongoing confession is a necessary condition for Christians to be forgiven, we must ask them, how did the church operate for the first 50 years before John wrote this epistle? Remember, this is a unique verse. It appears nowhere else in Scripture. We must also ask them, why didn't Paul ever teach this? By Paul's own words, he wrote that he had declared the whole counsel of God. Surely, something of this importance would have been, been included in the whole counsel of God. So, the bottom line is that we confess our sins because that is doctrinal truth but not as a condition in order to be forgiven. Praise God that our sins were forgiven 2,000 years ago on the Calvary cross. It's always good as we interpret Scripture to see how the author uses the particular words in another part of his epistle. So when we look at what John has done in 1 John, he uses the word confess several other times. And each time you will see it's a confession of doctrinal truth. In first John two twenty three, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And then we look at First John four two three. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So here is the test. Do you confess doctrinal truth? Or do you reject it? In 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Can you see John's use of confession is to acknowledge doctrinal truth? So in 1 John 1, 1.9, it is not a confession of specific sins in order to be forgiven, but the confession that we are sinners. Don't miss this because it's critical To understanding our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and making our joy complete. We look to the Apostle Paul. He used the word confess in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What is Paul doing? He's asking you to confess doctrinal truth that Jesus is Lord. Let me ask you what do these seven men have in common? The repentant Job, the hardened Pharaoh, the double-minded Balaam, the contrite David, the insincere Saul, the condemned Judas, and the prodigal son. Do you know what each of these men have in common? You'll find it by looking at the particular verses. But each one of them confessed, I have sinned. Job remained faithful to God even under the most trying of circumstances after he confessed. Pharaoh's confession came only after the hail had destroyed everything in sight. As soon as the hail ceased, he continued in his sin. Balaam's confession showed his double-mindedness because he continued to love the wages of unrighteousness. David trusted God's grace and mercy for his forgiveness. Saul was insincere insincere with his lying excuse. He said, I have sinned because I feared the people. Judas confessed after he betrayed innocent blood. And the prodigal son returned to his father after squandering his inheritance. Brokenhearted and feeling unworthy of even being called a son, he confessed, I have sinned. His father felt compassion for him gave him his best robe, and restored the relationship, and their joy was complete. I share these seven men with you to show you that confession alone does not bring forgiveness of sin because only the three men that you see in white were actually forgiven. What was the difference between the three men and the others? They confessed with a broken and contrite heart. So let's take a closer look at another type of forgiveness. There is a judicial forgiveness, but there's also a parental forgiveness. And I actually um, got a lot of this information out of John MacArthur's book on forgiveness. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. But we know that God is a judge who forgives us judicially, but He's also a loving Father who forgives us as a loving parent. In justification, we know there is no more condemnation. Once we have been judicially forgiven, there is no more condemnation. But as God forgives us as a loving Father, He also disciplines us for correction. This will increase our sanctification. Sanctification is the process where we grow in holiness. As a judicial judge, God deals with the acquittal of sin's punishment. But as a loving father, he deals with sin's consequences. Judicially, once we are forgiven, it provides union with the Father. And in parental forgiveness, it restores the intimate communion that we once had. That's why we confess, so that our intimate communion with the Father will be restored. Judicial forgiveness is given once. There is no need to ask for it again. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been judicially forgiven. The sin debt has been paid. It has been canceled. The debt has been forgiven. But as a request for God's mercy and parental forgiveness, we ask for it often, and God gives His mercy often. It's an ongoing plea for His mercy, and He answers that. Can you see the difference between God as a judicial judge and God as a loving Father? As a judge, He canceled sin's debt, but as a loving Father, He disciplines us so that we will grow in holiness, grow in the righteousness of His Son, being more and more conformed to the image of His Son. I'd like to give you, uh, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, I don't want you to take my word for it, but I want you to take God's word for this. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read that once we have been restored to union with God, each time we confess to our loving Father, we restore our intimacy with Him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives.' Some translations would use the word chastening or rebuke in place of scourging. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Look at verse 10. We read, he disciplines us for our good. We may share in his holiness. That's the purpose of the discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Drop down to verse 13. Therefore make straight paths for your feet. And then in verse 14, pursue sanctification. So can you see as a loving father, because we have been adopted into his eternal family, he will discipline us for the purpose of sanctification so that we will grow in holiness. That's why we confess to Him as our loving Father. Well, some people would say, well, what about the Lord's Prayer? We know that in the Lord's Prayer, there is a section that includes us asking, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, in Matthew 6, four. And then after the Lord has taught us how to pray, in verse 6.15, verse 6, he writes, but if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I don't know about you, but I used to be a bit real concerned about this verse. I used to rack my brain. Father, is there anyone I haven't forgiven because I don't want this to keep you from forgiving me? I didn't have much peace because how do you know if there's anyone that you've forgotten about? But I want you to understand that Jesus taught this under the old covenant which was not fulfilled until his death. In the Old Covenant, blessings were conditional. We see God saying, if you, then I. The blessings were always conditional on our obedience in the Old Covenant. God repeatedly said, if you obey, then I will bless you. If you disobey, then I will curse you. So I'd like to take a look at the contrast between the Old Covenant which Jesus taught and lived under, in the new covenant of grace. In the old covenant, everything was conditional, as we have just seen. But in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, our forgiveness is unconditional. Those under the old covenant were baptized into Moses. Those in the new covenant are baptized into Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, sins were exposed and passed over, as we see in Romans 3, but they were never forgiven until Calvary's cross. But in the new covenant, sins have been forgiven. They've been forgotten by God, and they're taken away forever. In the old covenant, there was no salvation by the blood and sacrifice of animals. But in the new covenant, salvation is secured by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, many offerings could never make the Jews perfect, but in the new covenant of grace, one offering makes perfect forever those who are being sanctified. The old covenant was powerless to save, but the gospel of the new covenant saves to the uttermost. The old covenant was temporal, it lasted only 1,500 years from Moses to Christ. The new covenant is eternal. Every believer now has unconditional forgiveness. Did you know that Jesus never used the word grace in his pre-resurrection ministry? Part of it is because he did not install the new covenant until his death, the covenant of grace. So Jesus became the guarantee of a better covenant. The old covenant's conditional forgiveness is gone forever. In the new covenant, we have a guarantee We have an unconditional guarantee that God will forgive, preserve, and present blameless in heaven all who trust in Jesus. Remember what we read in Matthew 6.15, but if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That was Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, look at what we read in Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Can you see that the condition of the Old Covenant has been replaced by an exhortation in the New? We have been forgiven, therefore forgive others. At the Last Supper, Jesus initiated the New Covenant, saying, This is my blood of the New Covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When we look at the consequences of Adam's sin, We know through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Death spread to all men. Through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. All men are conceived in sin and born with a sin nature. This is why our most important and critical need is to be forgiven, because of our first parents. Sin entered the world through them and death through them. Adam stood for all of us as our federal head. When he fell into sin, we all fell. Prior to going into full-time ministry, I worked for 17 years in the corporate world selling computers in the high-tech industry. So if I were to use the high-tech language of the 21st century to describe Adam and Eve's fall into sin, it may sound something like this. The maker of all human beings is recalling some units due to a serious defect in the central component of the heart. Although the original prototype units named Adam and Eve were manufactured perfect, they later developed a malfunction. This resulted in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect, commonly known as Sudden Inescapable (laughs) Noncompliance, or S-I-N, The manufacturer who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect is providing a new heart to correct the sin defect. The master technician named Jesus Christ has graciously offered to bear the burden, the entire burden and staggering cost for this substitution. Any attempt by the human being to fix the sin problem himself will nullify the offer and cause irreversible damage." A description and verification of this procedure can be found in their operating manual called the Holy Bible. There is a serious warning found in the manual. Any human being not responding to this recall action will have to be scrapped in the fiery furnace. The sin defect will not be permitted to enter heaven because the facility cannot be exposed to such corrupt contamination. Contamination. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has reversed the curse of sin. When we look at this divine paradox, we ask, how can a holy, righteous, and just God who must punish sin let sinners go unpunished? Or how can a loving, merciful, and gracious God who created us punish anyone with everlasting torment? Well, we know that all of God's attributes work in harmony through a sinless substitute, who bears the sinner's punishment vicariously. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the atonement for our sins. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As our kinsman redeemer, He fulfilled all the conditions of God's law and justice. Having borne sin's punishment, He now stands before God, interceding for all who are in Him. And now repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This is because all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It is in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Clearly, the cross of Christ is the only ground on which a holy God can forgive sin I hope that we never take our forgiveness for granted and that we will live our lives representing our deep gratitude and love for the Savior. As we know that God punishes sin, the eternal punishment for sin is meted out in one of two places. Either at Calvary's cross where we read Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Or those who reject Christ as their substitute will have to meet the Lord Jesus at the great white throne where righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The Bible says only a fool would reject Jesus Christ as their substitute. We know that at Calvary the very thorns of God sent to curse the earth earth, were worn by the one who became a curse for us. God's righteous rage, which had been stored up for over 4,000 years of man's sin, exploded upon the spotless, innocent lamb. In an instant, God's eternal wrath was poured out on his only son. The two hearts that had been eternally joined together were now torn apart. Divine holiness was forced to repel the bearer of human sin. But the sacrifice was perfect. Jesus was resurrected. The Father was satisfied. Justice was served. Death was defeated. The Spirit was sent. And forgiveness can be secured. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim, especially in these next few weeks. Oh, but there are many who reject God's offer of forgiveness. That is why the great white throne is necessary It is there that those who rejected Christ will be judged according to their deeds and begin paying their eternal sin debt that Christ was willing to pay. When we look at a contrast between guilty sinners and forgiven saints, every sinner is dead in their sins. But once you have trusted Christ, you're now made alive in Him. No longer enemies of God, forgiven saints are now children of God. No longer destined for hell, we are destined for heaven. No longer controlled by the flesh, we're now empowered by the Spirit. And no longer in bondage to sin, we've been set free by the blood of Christ. We're no longer helpless and hopeless, but we are hopeful and sure. Guilty sinners are born once, destined to die twice, both physically and spiritually. But forgiven saints have been born twice, not only born physically, but born spiritually, and were destined to only die once. Guilty sinners face everlasting shame and humiliation, whereas forgiven saints are guaranteed an eternal inheritance. As I mentioned, there are many terrors in our church today, many who profess Christ but have never been born again. One of the tests John gave in 1 John 1, verse 6 if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see the vertical line of holiness, the horizontal line of our time on this earth. If our lives remain unchanged, if we continue to walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But John also said in 1 John seven, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and so our lives should reflect a growth in holiness as we walk in the light. We have victory over sin. Greater is He, the Holy Spirit, in us than he that is in the world, the devil. Through the power of the Spirit, we can put to death the evil deeds of the flesh and live our lives in conformity to the Word of God. We have victory, and we must walk in the light. Amen? So as I close, in Hebrews 4.14, what a great verse we read. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us continually confess what God has revealed to us through the Scriptures. And then we will not be led astray by those who dare to pervert the glorious gospel of grace. So how are we to live in light of these glorious truths? As the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, confess them with a contrite and broken heart, and then thank God for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. There is no need to ask God to forgive you judicially again. I don't wake up every morning asking my wife Jane to marry me. She did. And what a blessing it's been. But we have been blessed, too. We have been forgiven. So as we confess our sins, thank God that Jesus Christ forgave us 2,000 years ago by canceling the debt. Praise God that we have Jesus Christ, our advocate, interceding on our behalf. If we do stumble and fall into sin, we have a defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands up saying, paid for 2,000 years ago. We are to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God by turning from sin and renewing our minds. And finally, we are to confess and believe the promises of God so that our joy may be complete. May we live in the light of God's grace. May our lives reflect the complete joy that we have because we have been forgiven. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. And Father, it is my heart's desire that if there be anyone here this morning that is not sure if God has forgiven them completely and forever, I pray, Father, that by your grace they would look to the Lord Jesus Christ He has a free pardon for the most ungodly, a white garment for the most defiled, and a new heart for the most hardened. Oh, Father, I pray that they would not refuse him, that they would come to him with all of their sins, no matter how great or how many, that they would come at once to the Lord Jesus. He is the only one who can reverse the curse of sin. He is the only one that can keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in your presence blameless with great joy. And Father, we pray that as the world looks upon a man who many believe was a great spiritual leader, that you would give us holy boldness, that you would give us courage, that we would be able to speak the truth in love, that we would earnestly contend for the faith that is now once again under attack, that we would stand firm, not in our power, but in the power of your Spirit, And Father, that we would make the most of every opportunity that you give us to proclaim the glorious gospel of grace and the forgiveness that we have in Christ alone. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.